today's reading can be found on page 1110. <laughs> Acts 15, reading from 1 to 29. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, sorry, so, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we have been saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of many may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that has been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders and the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, 
to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and that send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm the word of mouth, to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. And the question that we're looking at today is how are Christians to make decisions? Um, that isn't obviously the purpose of Acts 15, but it, Acts 15 in, um, is a way in which we discover how Christians are meant to make decisions. All of us have to make decisions, so how do we go about it as Christians? We're all familiar with making decisions. We will have made many of us career choices. We probably have sat down and thought, what do I really want to do with my life? And then we look around to organisations and to companies who, who seem to be in the business of what we'd like to invest our time and energy and talent into. And then we think about, well, okay, what is it that I've got to offer them? And what are they looking for? And if we're really wise, what are they likely to turn us into? Well, the Bible won't tell you what you are specifically to do as a career, but it does teach things like that we are meant to work, that we are to be managers of God's creation, to be good stewards of his world. We are to operate at the best of our ability, of our God-given talent. We're to be honest, we're to save and invest, all those kinds of things. Some of you may have even sat down and thought, who am I going to marry? And you do it in quite an analytical way. I have a friend who, when he thought it was time to get married, he shortlisted half a dozen women and basically went round and conducted an interview with them. I think that was what it was, yeah. Um, well, I suppose, actually, the Bible doesn't... It wasn't me, by the way. Um, <laughs> didn't have as much choice as that. Uh, uh, Right, that wasn't, uh, this, is, this is the peril of deviating from your notes. And uh, anyway, so the Bible, in fact, tells us very little about who we should marry. Um, we're to marry somebody of the opposite sex, and if we're a Christian, we're to marry a Christian. After that, it's down to our own particular, you know, God-given wisdom. It could be advantageous to um, marry somebody with um, whom we are familiar with their and comfortable with their with our mutual backgrounds so that we're as compatible as humanly possible. 
And of course, at this particular time, we have big decisions. I don't mean Brexit, that's above our pay grade at the moment. I mean Christmas presents. Well, this year I, I hit on the solution for my sons and sons-in-law or sons-in-laws to be, and this is what I did. I, um, I emailed the significant women in their life, or they themselves, only those with significant women actually replied to me, so one, I've got to think of what am I going to give him now. And uh, I asked them to provide me with the neck size, chest size and sleeve length of their um, beloved. And I gave them a link to a well-known uh, uh, shirt manufacturer. I asked them to choose. I figured I'd get two wins in one go there, you see, because the woman would like the present because she's chosen it as well as the, the chap. And then uh, on Black Friday, when they're 20% off, I bought them all, really. So, but you've not come here today to listen to my tidbits on how to make decisions like Christmas shopping. What we need to know is how to decide on the big issues of life of which the Bible speaks clearly, such as how to be put right with God and then how to live as he intends. And this episode in Acts 15 is a good model from which we can learn. Now the issue at hand for them was one of fundamental importance. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch in Syria, teaching the newly established church there. And along comes from, come men from Judea saying, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then later in Jerusalem, in verse 6, we see the response from some of those there who, um, who had previously belonged to the Pharisaic stream of Judaism, who stood up and agreed. The Gentile converts, they said, must be circumcised and required to keep the laws of Moses. Now this is a question which goes at the heart of the Christian faith and it focuses on how we can be put right with God. And a great deal is at stake on the correct answer to this question. Are we saved totally by God's free gift that he gives us salvation free, gratis and for nothing or do we in some way, even in some small way, have to contribute to it, have to earn it? And this, for them, meant the addition, for men, of circumcision. Now these Jews from Judea were not quibbling that we are saved by the merits and benefits of Jesus' death, but they were saying that in addition to that, it is necessary to fulfil some of the Old Testament ritual requirements like male circumcision. Now, of course, they have missed the point of the law. The Ten Commandments were not given as a means of earning salvation. They were given so that we could realise that we can't earn salvation. We cannot buy our way into God's good books. And so the purpose of them is so that having realised we're in the wrong with God, we look to thinking, how can we put, be put right with him? And we realise that uh, gradually that uh, God's standard is perfection. We are, there's no way we're going to get anywhere near there. So we have to throw ourselves on his mercy, trusting that he has worked out a way in which he can forgive us. 
in the Old Testament, the very early days, they didn't have too much of an idea other than trust that God would somehow do it. But of course we know how he has been able to do that through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christianity, biblical Christianity, differs from all other religions at this particular point because they are all based on merit. It's what you do. You do X, Y and Z and you tick the boxes and you're okay. Christianity realises that perfection cannot be achieved, so we have to have it given to us. It is by grace we are saved. So the fundamental issue is at stake here. How did they go about working out which viewpoint was right? The Pharisaic one or the truly Christian one? Well, they as leaders of the Gentile mission, Paul and Barnabas, decided to go and sort things out with the leaders of the Jewish mission in Jerusalem. That's where those newly arrived from Judea um, said they'd come from and said they were authorised to do so. So they went straight to the supposed source to get it sorted out. But of course, that wasn't really where it originated. It was a, a, a deviation from the teaching of the apostles. But let's see what they did. Paul and Barnabas went there, we read, to consider this question with Peter and James and other apostles and the elders of the church at Jerusalem. Now, how did they go about considering this question? What was their methodology? And this is probably where we have most to learn. First of all, they actually managed to get together. Second, verse 7, there was much discussion. In verse 12, we realise they listened to one another. And they had, in verse 2, debated and discussed, and that must have continued. In other words, they exercised reason. They were behaving rationally. And this is an absolute necessity. As John Wesley famously said, Christianity is a rational religion, and irrational religion is false religion. So we're made in the image of God, and one feature of that image, in the sense that we're like God, who has revealed himself to us through words. We are rational, and we're meant to use our reason to understand his words. Now that's not the same as rationalism, which is an ideology which deludes itself into thinking that starting from little old me, I can work out exactly what the whole purpose of the universe's existence is supposed to be. That, our natural inbuilt intuition, only gets us as far as thinking creation requires a creator, and um, that our consciences, not that they're perfect and they do need educating, some are oversensitive, some are uh, not sensitive enough, but they do give us some indication when we're deviating from what is right and wrong. That's what Romans 1 and 2 teach us. So human, God-given reason is absolutely necessary. Debate and discussion is vital. Now Peter starts to share his experience over the last few years. He says in effect, verse 7, about 10 years ago, God used me take the gospel to the Jews and almost, in his case, by accident to the Gentiles, like the centurion Cornelius in Acts 10. He clearly 
observes, he says, that God made no distinction between them and us Jews. He gave the Gentiles forgiveness of sins and his Holy Spirit solely on the basis of faith alone, just as he'd done to us on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the church was born. So since the law was never able to save us, why should we impose it on them, he reckons. So, brothers, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile Christians, both are saved by faith alone. And then he finishes, and then there is silence. And then Paul and Barnabas get up to share their experience or tradition from their last few years. Personal experience, when shared by others, becomes corporate tradition in case you wondered what the difference between experience and tradition are. And it's the same. Their mission to the Gentiles and Jews turned out to be the same as Peter's earlier experience of mission to both Jew and Gentile. And then at the close of the meeting, James, yet another apostle, and possibly the chairman of this meeting, rises to conclude He'd search the scriptures to see if they give him an answer to this question. And he discovered in Amos 9, 11 and 12 what the shepherd prophet 800 years before had been inspired to write and to write what they could expect. So verse 16, God speaking, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That has been done 400 years later, 400 or so BC, when Nehemiah returned from exile and rebuilt the city and the temple. Now verse 17, 400 years after that, in the days of Christ and the apostles, we read the purpose of that rebuilding that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So what we have here is we have Peter's experience with Cornelius, we have Paul's experience of his first missionary journey, and James says that all of this is in accord with what God long before said would happen and what they could rightly expect. For James and for the whole council, that was conclusive, that decided the matter. What the New Testament apostles were discovering was what the Old Testament prophets had predicted. So, how in the light of that should we go about making decisions as Christians? Now, did you notice the ingredients in deciding which view was right. Well, there is reason, our God-given rationality. There is the past and the present experience and understanding of other Christians' tradition. And there are the scriptures. But notice the relationship between them. It is the words of the prophet in the Old Testament that are decisive. What it said, settled the matter. Scripture is the supreme authority. We of course have to use our rational minds, our intellects. 
We have, of course, to look to see what the experience of other believers in history and today have to contribute. But Scripture reigns supreme. To put Scripture first is to put God first, since he inspired its writing. And this is what we might call the apostolic method. And it should, of course, be ours too. It ensures that there is a final court of appeal, a definitive arbitrator for deciding what is true and false, right and wrong. So we should resist in any disagreement to be irrational. And we should, we should also resist the temptation to refuse to discuss and debate differences. We can't opt out. We should also resist the temptation to ignore the insight and experience of others. We should also resist the temptation to say, yes, I know what scripture says, but I cannot do that. Or worse still, I won't do that. A disobedient Christian is not only inconsistent, but pretty unsettled in their soul. A Christian who is saying, I can't, is denying the power of Christ to change. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With Christ it is possible to do what you think you cannot do if he has commanded it. Now look with me at verse 28 because this is the method. Scripture first, using our minds, our brains, seeking the views of other Christians past and present. And this method is said to be the Holy Spirit's way. Verse 28. In their letter explaining their decision, they write, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, they recognise that as they've been kind of carrying out this method, the Holy Spirit's been with them so that they've reached the right conclusion. A little aside, though, to answer a couple of questions that you might have. How can we say that Scripture is the supreme, the number one authority? Well, it is simply this. If we claim to be Christians then, of course, we must follow Christ. So our attitude to Scripture should be the same attitude that Christ had to Scripture. Now, of course, he doesn't have the New Testament because he's creating it in his life. But he did have the Old Testament. And so what did Jesus, what was his attitude towards the Old Testament? Well, it's quite clear that he reveres it and he submits to it, to their authority, himself. Just three examples from his life. In his personal conduct, when he was tempted by the devil at the very outset of his ministry, he countered each temptation with, it is written. And that, for him, was determinative. What the Old Testament said determined what he should do and not do. In his life's mission, how did he know what he was supposed to do? I mean, he didn't kind of get born on earth and in the stable know what he was going to be doing on the cross 30-odd years later. He gradually had it revealed to him as he read the scriptures. So, when he searched the scriptures and discovered his mission, 
uh, he frequently said, the Son of Man, which was his self-designation of himself, must, or it is necessary, suffer many things, be rejected by men, be killed, and after three days rise again. He got that from the scriptures, and he obeyed it, and he carried it out. He also submitted to the Old Testament in his controversies with other religious leaders. Whenever there were differences, he would ask them, what does scripture say? How do you read it, Luke 10, 26? Or even, haven't you read the scriptures? Mark 12, 10. And what of the New Testament then? Written after him. Well, he made provision for it. He appointed the apostles. They followed him around every day for three years. They saw all that he did. They heard all that he said. And then, when uh, he had ascended, well, in the period between the resurrection and the ascension, he opened their minds to the scriptures. All this stuff in the Old Testament which they hadn't fully grasped, now that he's come and actually done it, it all begins to click together for them. And he ensured that they were inspired by the Spirit to record the correct stuff. And he gave these guys, these apostles, his divine imprimatur, if you like, his seal of approval, that like Jesus, they had the astonishing ability to do miracles, the kind of stuff the world hasn't really ever seen since or before. Somebody who has got a leprous hand instantly. Nothing ambiguous in that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had no doubt Jesus did miracles. They were just perverse and said it's because he's of the devil he can do such things. When of course why would the devil do anything so good and helpful as to turn somebody who is disfigured by leprosy instantly straightened out again? Well, it was God's way, the book of Hebrews and Acts tells us, it was God's way of attesting that these guys, what they wrote, is what I've said. And that's what I've just outlined in a sort of technical term. It's called epistemology, which merely means our theory of knowledge. How do we know that something is true or false, right or wrong? Now there are alternatives to God being the kind of uh, first call, the one who determines right and wrong and truth and falsehood. You could have a dictator. One person decides. There's not a very good track record of that working out very well. You could have an oligarchy, basically an elite decides. You could have a democracy, the so-called 51% decides, which although it has its faults, is the best that we've ever come up with and we ought to be grateful for it. Or there is the individual. We can, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It's called anarchy. So a benevolent God calling the shots Deciding and determining these things is, I'd argue, the best option. And I think we'll find that's how we see the early church goes about 
its decision-making in Acts 15. Now, having decided, they then communicated their decision. They wrote it down for clarity. They visited in person, you know, for clarity. And having established the principle of salvation by grace and not works, they were quite chilled on secondary matters, things which they knew Christians didn't have to actually follow, but for the sake of fellowship with those who have a tender conscience, they said they ought to carry on doing. So they told these Jewish converts to Christianity that they should abstain from food offered to idols because there would be, um, although <laughs> the food's fine, you can eat it, but for some people who've been brought up doing that, now converted, they, they think they shouldn't do that. And so for the sake of the weaker brethren, you go along with them. The same would be true of blood, which was forbidden for Jews to uh, consume, although, of course, it was a temporary provision for the Old Testament ritual period before Christ fulfilled all that stuff. And similarly, the kosher way of slaughtering animals, that again, that was all part of the, the ceremonial law, which has all been fulfilled in Christ. But if you've got, well, not only if you've got Christians with a sensitive conscience, but if you want to actually eat with Jews who you're trying to introduce to them the Messiah, their Messiah, then don't put up unnecessary barriers to it. But what they insisted on was correct thinking, salvation by grace alone, and correct behaviour, abstain from sexual immorality. And the result, verse 31, they were filled with joy and encouragement. Verse 41, the churches were strengthened. Christians and churches do disagree with one another. We don't all make the same decisions. But I suggest that that is mainly because we don't follow Jesus's and the Apostles' methodology in decision-making. Where scripture, the words of God, reigns supreme and that we sit under it. We use our God-given reason to understand the words that have been revealed. We use our God-given reason to discuss and to talk with one another, to read the books of Christians who have gone before us, to listen to those Christians who are our contemporaries. But both we and they have to sit under Scripture. And that is the Holy Spirit's way. And that is how we decide on matters. And it will come, it will cause us to be more faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, like them, we are likely to be more joyful and encouraged and our churches strengthened. Let's pray. A colleague from our, an older prayer book for today says this, Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, 
that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.